Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Portfolio Manager Steve McMillan is today's guest. Steve sits down with host Pat Bolland for a discussion recorded in front of a live audience at our December Focus 2022 event for financial advisors. Steve joined Fidelity in 2008, and for Canadian investors, Steve manages Fidelity's Small Cap America Fund and Fidelity American Equity Fund. He also co-manages Fidelity Can-Am Opportunities class alongside Mark Schmel. Recently, Steve was also appointed Director of Research for U.S. Equities, responsible for leading Fidelity's Toronto-based U.S. Equity Research team. Steve will provide an update on his portfolios today, as well as sharing his thoughts on secular trends, how he maintains low portfolio turnover, growth versus value, and large versus small cap performance, among other topics. This podcast was recorded on December 8th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Okay, talk to me. We haven't talked in a long time. Uh, talk to me first about your investment philosophy. You know, so the basics of it haven't really changed at all um, over the last, I guess, 12 years now or so that I've been managing money for Fidelity, uh, which is concentrated portfolios, typically 40 stocks, uh, with the top 10 holdings being anywhere from 40 to 50% of the portfolio. Uh, and one of the things that I think really differentiates the funds versus uh, a lot of other stocks or funds in the category, especially in the small cap category, uh, is a focus on downside protection and very low turnover and a long time horizon. And so if you looked at the portfolio this year, the turnover would be probably somewhere in the 20% range, which gives you an indication that the average holding period would be about five years. And to me, what that really does is gives you an idea that I'm a long-term investor with a long-term time horizon. I'm looking for high-quality businesses, um, and I'm looking to buy them as though I'm buying the whole company. And so if I can find high cash-flowing businesses at reasonable valuations, and I can own them for a long period of time, uh, that can help me compound, and I can really focus on risk mitigation so that while you might have shorter-term volatility, um, the risks of permanent capital loss are less because the companies that are underlying it are generating so much cash flow, trading at a reasonable valuation, and time is on your side. Okay, so that's your approach. Is your strategy different? Uh, Glenn mentioned the three mandates, CAN-M, uh, but, uh, you know, longer term, small cap and American equity. Are your strategies different in those? So the philosophy is the same uh, across the portfolios. The difference between the Small Cap America Fund and the American Equity Fund is really uh, just around market cap. And so the Small Cap America Fund can go anywhere from micro caps up to uh, mid cap stocks. Often you'll get stocks that I've put in the portfolio as a small cap stock, say like a Cooper Companies, and 10 years later, it's now kind of a mid to a large cap stock. That's kind of a good problem to have. Um, <laughs> And then in the American Equity Fund, you'll start from those mid-cap stocks, go up to mega-cap. 
Um, the Can-Am Opportunities Fund is really the blending of the Small Cap America Fund with Mark Schmale's uh, Canadian Growth Company Fund. Um, it's not managed collaboratively. Um, we kind of do things separately, but it's kind of actually good that we do things separately because we're such distinct investors that you don't want to have styles uh, that start to merge. You actually want us to be uh, very different. Um, I was actually thinking on my flight here, uh, a good story about Mark and I uh, and how introverted the investment team can be sometimes. Um, Mark and I are flying back from a conference that's held at this hotel and we sit down next to each other uh, on the plane. Mark looks at me and says, if you don't talk to me, I promise I won't talk to you either. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to him, deal. We had a nice quiet flight home, everyone was happy. Uh, okay, interesting. Speaking of interesting, where do I go with that one? Not like hey, that, it's not like that on the sales team. Um, Volta year. I'd love your current perspective on what happened and where you're seeing opportunities right now. Well, I think the biggest thing that we can look at uh, would be a interest rate regime change uh, that's come with higher inflation. And that has caused a regime change, a leadership change within the market. Um, if you were to look back a year ago, uh, we have had a tremendous re-rating, de-rating of high growth stocks, speculative names, um, and a greater value put on cash flow. And so you've seen cheaper stocks outperform, uh, you've seen high growth stocks underperform. Um, and I think that, you know, I mentioned earlier the idea of permanent capital loss. So what's the difference between volatility and permanent capital loss? Volatility comes around when a company that generates earnings and cash flow, the market will have a re-rating of those cash flows. So a PE goes from 16 times to 12 times. Uh, or earnings go from $2 a share to $1.50 a share, and the market derates it. But with a cash flowing generating company that's trading at a reasonable multiple, time is on your side. And so as you wait, earnings grow, cash accumulates, and that over time should see you restore your capital. Whereas a permanent capital loss can come for businesses that were trading at multiples on things like sales, companies that don't make money. And so we saw a tremendous amount of speculation in areas like SPACs, um, companies that were involved in uh, electric vehicles, uh, all kinds of different businesses that maybe the cash flows were so far out or the valuations were so, ex so, um, so excessive that the D rating we've seen is really a permanent capital loss. And so when I look at the Small Cap America Fund, and we have a year like this year where the fund, I think it's down about 10%. I look at that as a temporary um, reduction because the underlying businesses are still generating so much capital and they're growing earnings. And so over time, that's going to come back to me through earnings growth, uh, dividends, and it doesn't give me any cause for long-term concern. No, but it plays right into your philosophy in terms of looking at cash flow because the volatility uh, brings the prices down, but the cash flow doesn't necessarily change, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, some of the things that are getting me really, ex really excited about the portfolio is that I think the prospective returns going forward 
are more attractive today than they were a year ago or two years ago because the valuations uh, are getting so much more attractive. And if you look uh, over the last 14 years, sorry, 12 years that I've been managing the portfolio, this is the cheapest small cap stocks have looked relative to large cap stocks. So if you were to look at price to book, EV to sales, uh, price to earnings, what you'd see uh, is that the stocks, the smallest stocks compared to larger stocks in the market are currently trading at some of the most attractive valuations that we've seen really since um, the 2000 tech crash, where we saw companies like Walmart and Home Depot trading at 40 times earnings, and then went through a decade long uh, multiple contraction. Yeah. And so today I'm able to find companies that are trading at very attractive multiples that are generating a lot of cash flow, that are growing, that there's no risk to their long-term business model. Um, and so it's finding uh, th these opportunities a lot more abundant, which is really exciting for me. Okay, more opportunity in small cap than large cap is what, you, what I'm hearing. Uh, are you focusing on smaller cap now? Yeah, you know, for me, I think if you're looking at prospective returns for large caps versus small caps, you know, we've seen a lot of the derating and uh, the FANG stocks, the mega cap stocks. Um, and when I think about, you know, the next five years, the next 10 years, where returns will come from, um, I'm not as concerned that you're going to have, um, you know, the five or 10 stocks that make up the largest stocks in the Russell, sorry, in the S&P 500, driving excessive returns for the market. I think that history would show us um, that there are always going to be a small number of stocks that become very successful that drive the outperformance, but those stocks might be small cap stocks today that become those large cap uh, stocks uh, in the future. Are there sectors that are more attractive at this point? For me, I think um, just going back to large versus small, uh, if you go within consumer stocks within small caps, if you go within industrial stocks, they have had a disproportionate D rating relative to their large cap peers. And so the small caps took the pain very quickly um, and um, very dramatically in really starting in early 21, the Russell 2000 peaked, which is a small cap index, well before the S&P 500. And so um, the small cap stocks, I think, on a lot of the consumer and industrial stocks have already more than priced in a recession. And I look at a lot of these businesses uh, and they're very attractively priced uh, through the cycle. And so I, I'm looking for secular growth, the cyclical businesses. So a great example of a stock on the small cap side that I, uh, that I purchased over the last year or so is a company called Fox Factory. Um, Fox Factory is a really interesting business. There's probably not a ton of uh, consumers here in the room uh, it's for the shocks that go into mountain bikes. They don't actually even make the mountain bikes. They make the shocks that go on the mountain bikes. They make the shocks that go on your off-road ATV. If you have a Ford Raptor that you take to the grocery store, but theoretically you could take it through, uh, through <laughs> the woods, um, you'll have huge Fox factory shocks on the side of it. If you're um, hanging out with Glenn Davidson, you'll see his, you know, Jeep Renegade with these huge Fox factory shocks, you know, at the grocery store, but he is ready to go. <laughs> and so the business is really derated um, because of concerns that there's going to be a consumer slowdown. But if you look, the company has grown its earnings multiple factors 
prior to COVID because it's a growth business. And one of the ways that they're growing is getting into the automotive aftermarket where people like to, it's called uplifting your, upfitting your truck. So you want to make it so it can go off road. They're also getting on all these new platforms like the Ford Raptor and there's other launches like it. Uh, and auto production has been depressed because right. of all the chip shortages. Uh, and if you look at these products and you think you're worried about a consumer slowdown, companies like Ford actually limit their production and there's a wait list even before COVID to get these vehicles. Uh, and so I think there's a secular growth angle to a company like this. Uh, and so I look for businesses like Malibu Boats, which is a, a small uh, position in the portfolio as well that I've owned for a couple of years. Um, and if anyone is into boating, um, if you have teenagers, they like to be pulled behind boats. Uh, and so, you know, the wakeboard category of boats is taking a ton of market share from your traditional um, kind cruisers. of cruisers, outboard motors. And so the, sh the category within boats has been gaining share pretty remarkably. But if you were to look at the overall boat category, you'd say, oh, you know, boats were a COVID winner. Uh, it's going to be cyclical during a downturn. But if you look at a company like Malibu, long before you had COVID come along, they were growing secularly at a very attractive rate. And now the stocks uh, has a single digit PE. I still think they're capacity constrained. Uh, and you can see these growth opportunities over a long period of time. Will there be issues during a recession? Absolutely. But I don't have a six month time horizon. I don't have a 12 month time horizon. I'm asking myself, where's the stock going to be in five years? And so if I can find these secular growth cyclical businesses on the back half of this recession, I'm going to be really well uh, set up. And, and right now I'm really focused more on catching the upside on a lot of these small caps stocks than I am on the downside because I think the market's already taken care of a lot of the downside. Th those two examples you gave are consumer, I would call them almost consumer driven. Yep. And yet when I look at your portfolio, you have other themes in there, medical devices as part, services as part of that. Are, are those growing? Yeah. So one of the things that I'm looking at going back to, you know, trying to find cyclical businesses that have derated, that have secular growth. Um, I have companies in the portfolio that focus on uh, HR outsourcing. So if you're a small business, the amount of regulation that goes into being an employer continues to rise, especially with actually work from home. You have uh, employees that are working across state lines now. Uh, there's a lot of issues that you have keeping up with uh, OSHA compliance, which is essentially uh, worker safety. Yeah. Uh, and so within small businesses, this category of it's called um, professional employment org organizations has been growing secularly. Um, and then underlying that, a lot of the people that they're employing uh, are in attractive growth industries like healthcare and technology. And these are capital light businesses. They generate a lot of cash. And so if you look at a company like Insperity, that's uh, the largest holding in the stock in the portfolio right now, the company has a goal of compounding earnings at 25% a year over the next four years. So that's 25% per year. And so they do this by a number of different ways, but a lot of it comes down to the blocking and tackling of running a business well. You have growth in the underlying market. You have growth in the number of salespeople that they have, increased productivity as those salespeople come up the uh, productivity curve. Uh, and then you have leverage as you go down the financial statements uh, from leveraging uh, fixed operating costs. And so you have a secular growth business that will there be a slowdown in employment? Absolutely, but I'm not worried about the next 12 months. I'm worried about the next five years. And I see them coming through this 
um, in a very strong manner. And the good news is if you look at how they get paid, they get paid as a percentage of the payroll of these organizations. And so as wages are going up, they have an opportunity to take more price. And so if I can find businesses like that, like ASGN that does IT staffing, uh, where there's a secular growth in digital spending, uh, where there's a secular growth in wages, um, they can take advantage of inflation and through a cycle, you're going to see um, more growth out of them in a capital light way that allows them to both grow their earnings and generate cash flow and redeploy to shareholders. Question from the app. As profit margins continue to be affected by rising costs and decreasing demand, which areas are you seeing more quality earnings growth? So I think right now, one of the things that I'm really continuing to focus on is more services-based businesses. Uh, I think a lot of the um, pressure we're seeing co is coming right now on margins from companies that make things. So think about the um, uh, think about the industrial companies that are are bending metal. Um, and so those kind of businesses are going to see squeezes. Whereas companies that have pricing power, so think about on the large cap side, I have Pepsi. Mm. They are seeing a tremendous amount of pricing, uh, sorry, cost pressures. And so since they do make things, their cost of goods sold are going up. But because they have such good brands, they're able to pass on that pricing. And in the last quarter, Pepsi actually raised price on average by 16%, which is why your grocery bills are so expensive. Mm. But And Fritos and all the rest. Exactly. If you love your spicy Doritos, yes. how much are you going to pay? Whatever. You know, whatever they ask. I'm not a I'm not vegan. I'm not a fitness guy. <laughs> That's right. I, weren't you having Doritos for breakfast this probably, morning? Probably. Probably when you're running. And so, what you want to look for in all these companies are companies that have pricing power. And so, when I look for a lot of these services-based businesses, I mentioned the IT staffers. The way that IT staffers make money is that a company comes to them with a problem. I need to build an app. I need a client portal, and I need you to find me the IT professionals that have the expertise that can put this project together. ASGN goes out and finds the people, finds whatever the market rate is, and if the market rate's up 10%, they go to their end client, tell them the price, and make a spread on it. Mm. And so they have the pricing power to pass on the inflation, and they have the ability uh, to maintain their margin. Uh, and so I think you don't want to be in businesses that don't have the ability to take price, that don't have a competitive advantage, and these are the times during an economic cycle where the worst businesses suffer the most pain because they don't have the ability to take price. Hmm. When a company you hold turns from small to mid or large cap, do you keep it in the portfolio? You know, I've got some great examples of stocks that have been in the small cap America fund for over a decade. Um, you know, one of them actually happens to be a Canadian company. Uh, and so, um, I've owned Couchard in the U.S. fund, the Small Cap America fund, since the day I took it over, uh, and I think, I think it's up 15-fold over that time period. Solidly a large cap. They have a lot of business in the U.S., a lot of business uh, outside Canada. Um, but what, the way I look at it is, my clients don't want me to sell a good company that's still a good company just because it's gone over a magic threshold. You realize taxes, you potentially lose an, lose an opportunity. When Hugo comes up, uh, I want you to take the opportunity to ask, to talk to him about the skewness of the market. Skewness uh, of the market. Skewness of the market, yes. So we have a, a, he has organized a 
uh, a meeting with Mark Leonard, who runs Constellation Software, is one of the you know great Canadian stocks that uh, Hugo has owned mm-hmm. for a long period of time. Uh, and it, he just had us read a paper about the skewness in the market. And I don't want to steal Hugo's thunder, but like one of the things that's important to consider is that you're going to have a small number of stocks that have a large uh, effect on your returns. And so I think you should let your winners run. Uh, and so when I find companies that like are like Cooper or Charles River Labs, that I find is a small company that become a large company, I look at that as a win, not as a problem. Uh, and I let them continue to compound in the portfolio. Yeah, I, I was just going to go there because uh, you have a lot of these stocks since we've been talking. Uh, and Charles River is one. Maybe give us updates on Charles River or, or Cooper. Yeah, Charles River right now is a really... Um, Some people might not even know what they do. Sure. So so what Charles River Labs does is um, they do all the preclinical work for a drug that's in development. So there's preclinical and clinical. Clinical is when they start doing testing on, on humans, phase one, two, three trials. So you take a drug, I take the placebo, we find out, you know, do you lose 20 pounds and I lose 20 pounds? Is it the drug? It'd be easier for me. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, the way I'm going to have you running after this, I don't, that's, <laughs> we're going to make progress here, Pat. Uh, and so what Charles River Debt Labs is they do everything before things go in humans. So they actually will uh, figure out the safety of whether or not it's safe to go into humans. They provide research models, which is a fancy way for saying lab rats. Um, so it's a really unique business that has these huge market shares, and they be, have become very dominant in this preclinical space. Um, during COVID, they had a tremendous amount of growth, uh, and it's not just COVID because of vaccines, but there's been tremendous amount of funding that's gone into biotechs. Mm. Um, and so as biotech funding has slowed, the stock is derated, and this is uh, we're reaching this really interesting point in the stock where the, the, the bear thesis would be this is a very cyclical business. Biotech funding has gone down, whereas the more bullish thesis that I would uh, hold to is that the investment in uh, drug spending is going to be uh, based on science and is a secular growth trend. And so that the drugs will get funded one way or another. And so there's still areas like VC funding, large cap pharma making acquisitions. Um, and so I think the good drugs will get um, invested in and that you'll see growth. And if you look at some of their peers, I'm meeting with uh, one of their small cap peers uh, on Friday back in the office. You know, They just put out their 2023 estimates. They're not seeing any slowdown in the amount of funding uh, in the environment. Uh, so you know, I think it's a great capital light business. I've owned it for 10 years. It's playing on the secular growth trend of drug spending and drug discovery. Um, and you know, regardless of what happens in these shorter term periods of things like biotech spending, I think if I look over five years, you're going to continue to see that secular growth. So what is your sell discipline? I mean, obviously you're um, speculating that the funding will come, but suppose it doesn't. What, what would be your sell discipline on a company you've had for 10 years? So what I like to look for, and one of the learnings that I've had over my career, um, is that when fundamentals start to deteriorate, I have to recognize that typically it means that the thesis is wrong. When I'm investing in companies that are um, in line with my overall style and strategy, which would be cash generative, stable, recurring businesses with competitive advantages, and generally not economically sensitive, when I start to see earnings estimates fall and the stocks fall, that typically means something has changed, that the competitive dynamics are getting worse, 
that the company's uh, growth profile is changing. And so when I start to see those earnings estimates fall, even if it looks like the stock is going down more, that's when I would look to exit. If I see earnings estimates falling because the economy is getting worse, I look at that as more of a cyclical downturn. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind looking through that uh, because I see the upside on the other side. Hmm. I love when you talk about your stocks. And there was one that popped up that I probably don't love, Service Corp. <laughs> so those don't, don't know, <laughs> he says. <laughs> for those who don't know Service Corp, it uh, is the largest provider of funeral homes and cemeteries in the U.S. I apologize. Uh, it's always more exciting when Mark Schmiel comes up here and talks about, you know, saving the world and curing cancer. But, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it doesn't work. It's true. But, you know, I will never own the stock that owned cured, that cures cancer, but I will own the stock that sold a rat to that company. Um, so, <laughs> so Service Corp, uh, unfortunately for all of us, uh, you know, demographics get us in the end. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the, uh, the demographics of the baby boomers are now just reaching 80. Uh, and so you are coming through the baby bus, which was uh, coming from the Great Depression. Uh, and so as we come past, you know, 80 years past the war years, uh, you're going to start to see probably 20 years of secular growth. Um, but you also have the fact that they have consolidated market share because they've done a better job uh, of doing pre-need sales. So you buy your cemetery in advance, you buy your funeral home in advance, they have a bigger sales force. Uh, and so they have a, had a step change in the amount of um, earnings power that they have, uh, and the multiple is still relatively attractive. And so if you look at that demographically, you know, it's one that you could own, you know, probably for the next decade to two decades. Yeah, the funeral business is interesting because, as I remember, it used to be almost like not Monpa. It wasn't Monpa, but very local. Are they or were they an acquirer? Yep. Yeah, they consolidated the industry. If you actually went back 20 years ago, the whole industry got in a bunch of trouble. There's a Canadian company, I think it was called Low or Lowe's, Lowe's. Um, and they like blew up their balance sheet, not because the underlying business wasn't good, but because they uh, financially uh, blew themselves up by taking on too much debt. Um, and so the industry went through all of that. And now we've got a much more consolidated space where now you have um, Service Corp is by far the largest, but still a long tail. Uh, and so they've consolidated kind of all the large players. And so they're just slowly taking share from the smaller players that don't have the scale to offer the same sales uh, opportunities. So that's where you get your growth from. Yeah. Wow. Uh, how do higher interest rates affect the small cap space? Back to a macro question. Yeah. So the higher higher rates have um, two major impacts. Um, and so one thing that's important to recognize about the small cap space is that um, of the Russell 2000 index, the revenue comes from the domestic U.S. economy. And so I think that is a really good thing um, because over a long period of time, the U.S. economy has outgrown uh, the global economy uh, and the dollar has been strong. And it's really been a great place, uh, a great place to invest and a great place to have exposure to. Um, Higher rates, one of the things it does is clearly slows the economy. I think you need to be concerned about um, the ability of lower end consumers to handle uh, larger discretionary purchases. Mm. Uh, I think housing is going to be a a big issue. Uh, I I believe the math I saw was on a $2,500 mortgage payment. In the States, you used to be able to buy a $730,000 house. The same mortgage payment now buys you a $480,000 house because the rates have gone from under three to over seven. Uh, and so anything that's going to be related to that home 
is probably going to be uh, at risk. Um, and so the other way that it affects uh, small cap stocks and the market in general uh, is the valuations and the multiple you're willing to pay. Uh, I'm sure you've all noticed for your clients, all of a sudden, guys like Jeff Moore seem a lot more interesting on the fixed income side. Even GICs are now an alternative, right? And so now if I want to come to you and say, you should invest in small caps, in the past, I'd say, I mean, I got to do better than 1%, right? Whereas now you can say, well, now you got to do better than, you know, five or six. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, which I hope I can, I know Sean Burgess here. I don't know if I don't think I can say that. So he's our head of legal, um, past returns are not indicative of future results. Um, <laughs> total disclaimer. Good. Yeah. That was good. So, uh, essentially one of the things that's happening now is that the multiples on stocks are going down. And so, that makes prospective returns a lot more attractive. Even if you think the earnings aren't going to change, one of the reasons the market is down is just the multiple has come down because you have to be more competitive with bonds. And so if you're investing in dividends, I can look at like a utility stock as an example where there's this company, CMS Energy, that I used to own for years and years. And at one point, the dividend yield on CMS was a little under three. And if you want to invest in their bonds, it was under two. Now the dividend yield is a little over three, but the bonds are like six. And so if you're thinking about where you want to invest as a utility investor, the stock or the bonds, all of a sudden the bonds are starting to look more attractive. And so when I bought CMS 10 years ago, it was 12 times earnings. And when I sold CMS, it was like 24 times earnings. The earnings profile over that period didn't change. It grew earnings 7% a year over the whole year as expected, and it'll probably continue to grow 7% a year as expected. My concern with utilities is that the way the industry is structured is you get what's called an allowed return on equity. The, you build a big power plant or a transmission line, and the government says, the regulator says, you can earn 9%. But when rates were so low, equity holders were happy to take five or six. And so they could go out at a big multiple, raise equity, um, use it to build their power plant, grow their earnings. Mm. But now the equity holders are saying, well, I don't want six, I want nine. And so I think the multiples are going to compress. And I think that some of those uh, areas like utilities, you're going to continue to see multiple compression. So I used to have a big weight in utilities. Uh, I'm now completely out of the sector. Do you care about macro really because you're a bottom and when i think of uh, you know fox and malibu they're consumer as i indicated and everybody says the consumer sectors you know uh, they pulled forward sales if you will when interest rates were so low and they're going to hurt over the next little while and yet you're still investing in that space because the macro didn't matter to the fundamentals are like do you really care about yeah i think you know you can never be blind to the macro you know you can't be on the precipice of a recession and not say it has you know no impact you can't not recognize, you know, what happened um, in terms of like the demand shifts that happened in COVID. But, you know, a lot of the, you know, the COVID winners, so to speak, you know, I think everyone that was going to was going to watch, um, you know, Netflix got a Netflix account, you know, and we, you know, we saw the, the huge uh, drawdown. Um, and so I think there was a lot of these areas where you've seen the reset, whereas, you know, the enthusiasts that still liked a mountain bike, are still mountain biking. And if you were a low end 
um, you know, per, if you're a person that just was going to, you know, ride around, you know, the, the neighborhood, you go out and bikes were sold out and you couldn't get one. Now you don't need another bike for five years if you did get one or 10 years. Whereas if you're into mountain biking, you know, you're into mountain biking and you're still going to do it. And so one of the things that I think is important about the outdoor leisure space is I think because of work from home, because of remote work, I think that people have more time to do the things they like to do. So, you know, maybe you, you know, work from cottage on Fridays and at four o'clock you can be in your Malibu boat, you know, and away you go. Um, maybe you like to mountain bike, maybe you like to golf and, you know, you're taking commuting time and turning it into, you know, other time. And so, um, you know, I think some of these things uh, have secularly shifted. Are there any areas or sectors of the market that you avoid investing in? Yeah, yeah, most of them. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, areas that I would broadly avoid would be areas that I think uh, have excessive valuation, companies that don't make money, um, typically avoid things like biotech stocks and semiconductor stocks, um, avoid deeply cyclical businesses, highly capital intensive companies. Uh, and I kind of asked myself really basic questions. So, you know, uh, Glenn mentioned that I'm the director of research now. And so one of the things that I'm doing with the analysts is, you know, I was just having a conversation before I came here with one of my analysts about, you know, whether or not you should add back stock-based compensation and, you know, whether or not, you know, the fact they don't have gap earnings matters. And I try to keep things really simple. And, you know, I was saying to the analysts, so let's say, you're looking at this company that generates no cash flow. The only way they are allowed, able to stay in business is 40% of their sales goes to paying their employees through stock-based compensation. Mm. Would you want to buy this company? Like, would you want your family to come in and buy this company that generates no earnings and has no path to gap profitability? You know, I think sometimes we just need to keep things like really simple. And so I try to avoid the greater fool theory stocks. Um, and so if I can just invest in those companies that, Five years from now, earnings are going to be higher. They're going to generate a lot of cash flow. It's the type of business I would want to own uh, personally for a long period of time. That's where I need to be. And so that leads me away from a lot of the things that either are too risky, that I don't understand, um, or really just aren't great compounding businesses. We're down to about three minutes. And I'd love to have you explain where your portfolios fit in somebody's uh, investments and can op can am opportunities as well because they're significantly do different, aren't they? Yeah. So you know, I think generally speaking, with the portfolios, I think it's really important to match up the clients' needs and the needs and the structure of the fund. And so, you know, I've got the vast majority of my financial assets in the Fidelity Small Cap America Fund, the American Equity Fund, or stocks that are in those funds, and. For me, I don't ever think to myself for my, you know, personal financial planning, all right, over the next 10 years, I need to beat the S&P 500 by 2% in order to achieve my financial goals. I say really straightforward, okay, this stock has to go up by X percent, you know, over five years, over 10 years. I need to have more money in the future than I have today. Whatever I do, I cannot lose all of this money by investing in something that could go to zero. I need to compound. And so clients that are looking for that long-term financial return of having a personal need met, whether that's retirement, whether that's education, you know, whatever that case may be, as opposed to the client that is looking for a shorter-term speculative win, because there's going to be periods of time when the fund's out of style. You know, if you were to look back at 2020, 2021, uh, 
there are a lot more exciting places where you could have made money. Now, those same places lost you a lot of money in 2022. But, you know, if you want to make money this year, I might not always be your guy. But, you know, over a long period of time, you know, I think the NAV was 23 when I took it over and now it's like 90 something and that's pretty good. And so if I can just keep that up into the right, then over a long period of time, you know, the client's needs will be met and uh, the fund's needs will do that. But does Can-Am opportunities fill a different slot? The great thing about Can-Am is that it can fill the spot a little bit where you have a client that does want to make money and doesn't understand every year, you know, why things aren't great. And so Mark and I used to joke, you know, if we could have an alpha sharing program where we would just go back and forth, that would really smooth things out. Uh, and this is actually kind of what the fund has done because typically in periods of time where he's doing really well, you know, I might be struggling and vice versa. And since our styles are so different, it allows us to kind of bring them together uh, and putting them together, it actually reduces the volatility and can make for a great client experience. Steve, thank you so much. We've run out of time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.